Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now, Fall of the House of Sunshine is offering episode commentary to Fable and Folly Plus supporters, still entirely ad-free. Fable and Folly Plus. Sign up today at fableandfolly.com slash plus. In this world, there are more stories than artifacts in the Smithsonian. Some are historic, some are contemporary, some are air and space. But they're all worth the free admission. So, open your visitor's map wide and listen. Welcome to Brushtown Stories, Episode 14, The Caterwall Initiative, Part 1. With a quick exhale of air, the balloon was filled and then twisted into the form of a dog. The assembled group laughed. But the laughter was cut short. We must never forget what was done to us. The man holding the balloon doggy said, We are victims. There were murmurs among the small group. It was a meeting of the Painted Panthers, a group of renegade clowns who were still fighting for the liberation of those sent to the ha-ha camps. These were some of the top representatives of their factions, and this meeting was long in the planning. An uneasy alliance was formed for a greater purpose. Squeaky Tiki, a Polynesian-themed clown, spoke up. I'm concerned that we are not taking enough action to free our bozos and bozettes from internment. There was more arguing, until the balloon dog was popped, bringing everyone to attention. The man who popped the balloon dog, Lavi Piemos, argued that patience was the best course for the time being. That's when Presto the Clown Magician piped up. Presto thinks there should be a change all in leadership. The group then returned to arguing, but one of the clowns, Hee-Hee, kept quiet. She just watched all the shouting. Finally, Tiki honked his bicycle horn and the group simmered down. You've been quiet, Hee-Hee, Tiki said. What do you think? I think, Hee-Hee said as she rose to her feet. I think you're all under arrest. With that, Hee-Hee ripped off her wig and revealed she was in fact FBI agent Samara Javadi. She had gone undercover when Hee-Hee was caught in a dragnet outside the Chuckle Hut. Comedy clubs were still allowed under the stand-up corollary, but the line between stand-up, comic, and clown was firm and involved some strict enforcement. But that didn't stop the painted set from showing up for laughs. They loved to laugh, and it was that weakness that the FBI liked to exploit. As the FBI stormed the building, the clowns panicked and ran like wet voles from a blow-dryer cat. Samara took down Presto herself. When it was all said and done, they managed to apprehend six of the ten Harlequins. As the clowns were loaded into the prison vans, Assistant Director Simmons came up to Samara. He congratulated her on her work and discussed a possible promotion. She could head up the L.A. Bureau, tasked with taking down the cartels. But she demurred. She liked the clown beat. It's what she knew, what she was good at. A few days later, the clowns had been put into holding cells ready for interrogation, their possessions logged and inspected. One thing that drew the team's attention was a piece of paper with just the words, Catterwall Initiative, on them. Samara tried to interrogate Presto, but he just did a few sleight-of-hand tricks and then mimed locking his mouth and throwing away the key. Typical clownery, Samara thought. 
the things she'd do if she could. But she knew she couldn't stoop to the clown's levels. The next day, some of the agents were congratulating themselves on the big clown bust. But Samara wouldn't have it. There were always more. The world was their car, and there were always more and more cramming themselves inside. She scowled as she refilled her coffee mug. A bright yellow mug with the words, World's Greatest Grandpa, printed in bold red letters. But today, she didn't feel like the greatest grandpa, or even a great grandpa. She barely felt adequate. And she wasn't even a grandpa. She had just got the mug for a dollar at Dollarama when her Punching Justice mug broke. Still, though, the mug just seemed to be mocking her less than greatest in grandpa status. She was angrily sipping her java when one of the lab techs came up to her. He had important news. When they analyzed the paper, they found it was a rare type, only produced in Bazamia. Since Bazamia was a sovereign nation, its doings fell outside the FBI's purview. But Samara had a contact. Later that night, she headed into the Pink Fox, the trendy lesbian bar in Mauvetown. Why did she let her pick the meeting spot? She always did this. Samara figured she picked the place just to make her uneasy. That was her style, after all. Inside was a buzz. Joan Jett was playing on the speakers. She picked her out right away, but then again, she was the only Bigfoot in the place. Agent Squatch smiled and waved her over. You like the place? She asked. I didn't realize, um, you... They make a good dark and stormy. Sometimes I like dark and stormy. Sometimes I like sunny days. I don't really conform to one type of weather. Samara shrugged. Oh, Agent Squatch added. I got you a cranberry juice. I know you don't drink. She handed Samara her juice as they moved to a table. They'd met at a leadership conference a few years back and stayed in touch. Though Squatch's hard partying lifestyle and outsized personality sometimes rubbed Samara the wrong way. So, so, about the paper, Samara began. Squatch leaned back. The Bazzies aren't easy like those clowns you usually chase after. She kept her eyes focused on Samara. I'm not going to be intimidated by a bunch of rogues with bionic attachments living on some barren island. Samara figured it made sense that Unstoppopopolis would help the clowns. Anything to destabilize the country. Squatch disagreed. She felt it was more a singular person. She suggested the Bazamian businessman Holiday Roman. He was called the Mad Landlord because he built an apartment building that was designed to drive its tenants mad. He also worked on a corn maze that caused a farmer to burn down his barn and ride his favorite cow into the state capitol. Holiday was tried as an accessory for the crime, but got off on a technicality. He also created the notorious Tarantula Arms Spa and Resort, Bazamia's famously bizarre hotel. Recently, he moved back to the U.S. and was currently ensconced in a penthouse near Vinegar Row. It seemed like a good lead, and Samara thanked her for it. Agent Squatch finished her drink and leaned back. They shared a plate of truffle fries and complained about work. But then all of a sudden, Agent Squatch leaned forward and, almost in a whisper, asked, What do you know about the Dentites? Samara gave her some basic info. She wasn't sure why Agent Squatch would want to pursue the issue since the Dentites were almost completely U.S.-based and thus outside of the scope of the CIA. Later, as Samara walked home, the hair on the back of her neck started to tingle. She was being followed. She ducked down a side street, and it was then that the samurai attacked her! She was quick to fend off the first few, blocking their swords, but eventually they were able to grab a hold of her and chloroform her. She tried to fight it, but soon, she fell into unconsciousness. When Samara awoke, she was in a nicely appointed bedroom. It seemed like a hotel room, with 
well-appointed semi-industrial style furniture and cool blue tones, yet somehow impersonal. She got up, a little woozy. The floor seemed to list under her feet. Everything in the room seemed just a little off. She had a pit in her stomach as she gripped the dresser. A wave of nausea and nervousness washed over her. She quickly grabbed the doorknob and pushed herself out of the room. She stumbled into a giant living room. Floor-to-ceiling windows looked out over the city. In a mid-century cream chair sat a man in a blue pinstripe suit. He smiled. Like the room, every item is slightly askew. From the desk to the bed, even the walls on the floor, creates a sense of existential dread. One of my own designs. Samara's head was still foggy, and she only managed to spit out, Who? The man ignored her. He hopped to his feet and walked over to a wet bar and made himself a drink. I'd offer you one, but I know you don't. Noble, if a bit prim. Sorry about the samurai. I wanted them to bring you willingly, but they are just so eager. Samurai, right? I considered ninjas, but everyone does ninjas. It's so 1980s, like acid wash jeans or wine coolers. I did consider man looks or hoplites, but who can recognize a hoplite on sight? Maybe Dan Carlin, but I'm not interested in abducting him. Yet. Uh, kidding. But please, Agent Javadi, sit. I've been a terrible host. Do have some of the pretzel nuggets on the table. They're dusted with a chili rub sold only to Frank Bennis and myself. Samara walked to a chair and plopped into it. She grabbed a few pretzel nuggets and ate. A bit of spice, a bit of salt. Solid, she thought. The man sat back down. He took a long sip of his drink. I'm Holiday Roman, and it's a true pleasure. Welcome to my nightmare house. Brushtown Stories is a Roy Gold production. It was written by Jonathan Goldberg with music by David Riglieri. Samara Javadi is me, Melissa Lusk. Find out more about the show and cast at podmusical.com. Find out more about baseball, America's pastime, at your local library or down at the park. Baseball, a sport for those who are bored with real sports and those who like spitting. Who can forget baseball greats like George Brett, Cal Ripken Sr., Baby Ruth, and Cal Ripken Jr.? Baby Ruth? And who can remember baseball also rans like Fenton Leroy Muscles Mole, who played for the Yankees from September 1st, 1949 to September 30th, 1949? Not me. Thanks for listening, and have a suntabulous bicuspid of a day. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.